Welcome to The Platform, a podcast from the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University about the technologies that we create to govern our lives. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones. Today, imagine you're the chief suspect in a crime. You've been arrested, you're awaiting trial, you're in jail, but you've got the option to pay bail so you can go home, be with your family, go back to work until you can finally plead your case in court. Typically, the amount of bail you'd pay would be set by a judge, a human being, a person who weighs the risks of letting you out of jail. Are you likely to show up for your trial or are you likely to skip town? Now imagine if you found out a computer was making that decision. Not just the decision about the amount of bail you might pay, but eventually how much time you'd serve should you be convicted or when and whether you'd get parole. This may seem like science fiction, but increasingly, the criminal justice system is employing what are called risk assessment tools. These are used by judges in courts to apply data-informed standardized decision-making to the process. These tools might be better known as algorithms. Now, we encounter algorithms like these all the time outside of the criminal justice system. There are algorithms that can guess within a fraction of a percentage point whether you'll like a certain movie on Netflix, or a post on Facebook, or a link in a Google search. But the tools now being adopted by criminal justice systems all across the country, from Arizona to Kentucky to Pennsylvania to New Jersey, are made to guess whether you're likely to flee the jurisdiction of your trial or commit a crime again if you're released. With the stakes as high as this, literally human freedom, some are asking for greater caution and scrutiny regarding the tools being developed. Chris Babbitts is the director of the Cyberlaw Clinic at Harvard Law School. He helped draft an open letter to the state legislature of Massachusetts about risk assessment tools, co-signed by several researchers working on the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence. He spoke with Gretchen Weber about why we need more transparency and scrutiny in the adoption of these tools. So risk assessment tools, broadly speaking, are uh, pieces of software that courts use in order to uh, assess the risk uh, uh, posed by a particular criminal defendant in a particular set of circumstances. So the most common situations that where we see them in use are in courts making determinations about bail, sentencing, and parole of criminal defendants. And really, I think most of the action happens at the bail phase. So this is pre-trial. Person's arrested for a crime, and in general, we don't keep people in jail during the entire pendency of their case because the trial of their case may not happen for some period of time. So we typically release them subject to some kinds of conditions, often subject to payment of money bail. And uh, what a risk score is, a risk assessment is, it's a numerical uh, assessment that's supposed to help educate the judge as they're making that determination. And the factors that you typically take into account when you're assessing bail include things like the risk that the person is or is not gonna come back for their trial or their hearing at a later date, the risk that they might actually flee the jurisdiction altogether. Um, in some cases, the risk that they're going to commit another crime while they're out or the risk that they're going to pose a danger to the community. Obviously, if it's a, a, a very dangerous person, we may not want them uh, out there. We may actually want to or, or we may want to impose fairly serious restrictions on their on what they can do um, while they're out of jail. Um, and a risk uh, risk assessment tool is essentially uh, helping the judge to do something that judges do anyway, judges make these kinds of determinations all day long in cases. Um, the risk score is a numerical way uh, of informing that, that process. What's wrong with the system? Why would you even need a tool like Well, this? so the argument is, you know, and I should just say, you know, up front, there are some people who say, 
they're not addressing any need and this is awful and we need individualized personal attention paid to every case and why would we ever include a numerical um, uh, or, or computer program in doing any assessments here? I actually think that there's some ways in which they are helping to solve problems, particularly problems around consistency. So sometimes a, a set of standards that a judge is supposed to apply to make any decision, bail is just one example, but might be very broad and you might have two judges um, making uh, determinations about similarly situated people in similar sets of facts, reaching wildly different conclusions about their bail or their sentence or about really uh, anything. Judges have a lot of discretion to act. Um, and so one reason why you might want to um, educate um, judges uh, using these kinds of numerical scores is to sort of promote some general consistency to say, okay, if, if we can kind of conclude that we're going to use this, you know, six point risk scale um, and we're going to begin to cluster people who have a risk score of four and people who have a risk score of five, um, we might get more consistency of results across uh, jurisdictions. So that's one big piece of it. Another potential piece of it, and this is where we start to get sort of controversial, is um, there is a sense that I will not say anything controversial by saying the criminal justice system is very biased and has historically treated racial minorities and, and other members of marginalized groups poorly, and a, that a lot of that may stem from uh, human biases that creep in anytime you have one human being evaluating another human being. And so there's an argument to be made that if we can do risk scoring right and turn it into a relatively, I'll say, objective, kind of in air quotes, uh, process where we assign a score and that score maps on to a particular level of bail or maybe a particular kind of sentence or something like that, we might remove... Um, from judges the kind of discretion that leads to biased decisions and then just reinforces existing biases in the in the criminal justice system. So um, that's the sort of the positive spin on it. Consistency across judges by reducing things to numbers, plus this, this idea that um, one of the reasons why the system is so biased is that human beings are biased. And if we could distill human beings down to their to basic data and pull out the criteria that we don't want people taking into account, race or gender or something like that, we could get fair results. Are we are we there? Can we do that? I mean, you just said if, yeah. if it's done right. So I think that um, I'm a lawyer and I'm not a computer scientist. And one of the fun things about this whole project is that it's making lawyers spend a lot of time talking to computer scientists about these issues. My sense is that from a computer science perspective, we're not there um, because in general, um, these kinds of algorithmic technologies or technologies that use machine learning are only as good as the data on which they're trained. So if I'm trying to decide whether you're going to come back for your hearing in six months if I set your bail at a dollar versus if I set your bail at a million dollars, um, the only uh, information that I have to train a risk scoring tool to give me a good prediction of, uh, on that front is data about past people like you who were... Um, came through the criminal justice system, were given a high bail or a low bail, home release, supervised release, an ankle bracelet, whatever the criteria are, and, and then we can evaluate how, how they came out. And obviously, again, if we take as a given the relatively uncontroversial 
idea that the system is biased in many ways, uh, ranging from, you know, increased arrest records for uh, increased uh, incidents of arrest for people of certain racial minorities, that that sort of thing. If we take as a given that the whole system is biased, the, that the data set coming out of that system is biased. And when we feed that data to a, a computer program, um, the results are then going to be biased. So then you go to a computer scientist and say, can we get good predictive outcomes here and weed out the biased parts or right? take away the race and take away all the, all the stuff that we don't want to feed in. Um, and the short answer is that's really hard um, for a lot of reasons, some of them related to the fact that, you know, I think it's fair to assume that most, if not all of these tools, don't explicitly take into account things like race, that we probably don't want them taking into account. But they probably take into account other variables that act as proxies for race and like, like you know, uh, where you live and that sort of thing. And um, technically speaking right now, it's very difficult to weed out bias uh, entirely. Now, I should also say that um, I don't know, again, if, if, a, if a tool is used correctly and calibrated correctly and the algorithm is good and fair and just, it may be that it's no worse than what a human being would do in that case, right? So, I, you know, um, it, it, so, uh, you know, one, one, one perspective is that if the entire system is biased, um, then any result that comes out of it is going to be biased and therefore, um, uh, but, but we need to have a criminal justice system, right? We can't sort of shut down the whole system until we until we figure it out. So one perspective would be, yeah, but can we get it to the point where it's at least no worse than a human being, and then maybe start with that baseline and then make it even better? Um, and I think we're getting close to that. Um, but the other thing I'll say is there's a lot of open questions around this right now. For a lot of reasons we can talk about it, the algorithms aren't always the most transparent. Researchers don't always have access to fully understand what they're doing and how they're making the they're coming up with the scores they come up with. So, um, uh, the short answer to your question is I don't think we're quite there. I think we can get there, but research is is uh, is complicated in this area. I just have like five different questions. No, I know. Right. <laughs> you just said yeah. one of them was you said something about probably, yeah. and they probably have mm-hmm. proxies for mm-hmm. race or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that points to an issue about yeah. like we don't know what goes into these yeah. tools. So right. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the interesting questions here is that for the many of the tools that are in use in states around the country are tools that are developed by private companies, and they they sell they sell those tools to state court systems the same way Microsoft sells me Microsoft Office to use. In my my job here, um, because they're proprietary tools and they're trying to kind of achieve some sort of competitive advantage against other companies offering proprietary tools, they're not always uh, the most open about the factors that go into these decisions. Um, and so, uh, with many, if not most, of the tools, we do not actually have a very detailed breakdown of what factors are being considered. What relative weights are being given to each factor, um, that sort of thing. So um, one of the, um, I think, pushes for, for sort of advocates in this area is, uh, at the very least, we need more transparency. And one of the problems we're trying to address in the context of this bigger initiative we have going on here is, are there ways to achieve that transparency while recognizing the you know, legitimate business interests of private companies that make this stuff? 
One answer might be no, <laughs> you can't you can't reconcile those, and therefore states, when they're making you know the most important decisions that states make, which is whether we incarcerate someone or not, um, shouldn't buy off the shelf proprietary tools that are locked down, and should instead use open source tools or develop their own tools and and develop those tools in public and make the algorithms transparent and subject to comment by the population to say. Um, no, you're weighing this factor too much and this factor too little. Um, other, another perspective would be, um, yes, we're, we're, we can come up with ways for the companies to make these tools to not have to share sort of the special sauce, the, you know, the, the, the magical secret uh, element that makes their tool so valuable, um, but still um, run, the, run different data sets through those tools and come up with some determinations about whether um, they're spitting out biased outcomes. Um, you, you, know, you don't necessarily have to break open the tool and expose the IP or the trade secret or whatever it is that kind of shows you the inner workings of the tool if you um, publicize, uh, if you give researchers a way to feed data into the tool and see what data comes out of it. Say you're in charge of buying one yeah. of these tools for a state. Right. You don't know what goes into them. Yeah. How do you pick one besides, yeah. like, someone said it was good? I mean, yeah. how, how do you actually know... What you're getting is good. Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the things. That, another thing I think we're trying to sort of evaluate here is it seems to us that sort of state procurement officers have a lot of potential influence, can have a lot of potential influence here. Um, government procurement of technology uh, is... Um, it, uh, it, this is like a massive generalization, but I guess I'll say that um, that governments are not really well known for being innovative in the way they procure technology. And there's lots and lots of stories about um, government, uh, federal or state government offices that procure a particular piece of technology and then continue using it for decades and decades. And, you know, we've all had the experience of interacting with some government office or website that's using a decrepit 20 year old, you know, interface. Um, so, so in general, the fear is that the same people who are procuring um, word processing software for state employees or um, payroll software for the HR department of the state government are in charge of procuring these kinds of tools and that they may be more focused on traditional procurement considerations around sort of cost and efficiency. Um, if you have a line out your door of private companies that want to sell you their tool um, and you don't have access to the statistical models, the algorithms that went into the creation of these tools, that sort of thing, nor frankly would you know what to do with that information if you did have it. But if you, know, if you don't have access to it in the first place, you might have to simply rely on yeah, reputation, cost savings, that sort of thing. If someone's telling you, look, this will make the process of assessing bail or assessing sentencing or parole X percent more efficient in your district, um, that's, that, that might be a, a, a very appealing option for someone who does procurement. So um, I think one of the things we're trying to do here is to create resources for those procurement officers and to create places they can go to say, um, A, do I even want to procure an off-the-shelf tool at all or do I want to build one here in the state? And B, if I'm going to procure one that exists, um, how can I both test it up front to make sure I'm buying a good one and how can I keep rigorously testing it over and over again as we roll it out so that it can be modified as needed uh, in the future. And right now those questions aren't really answered because this sounds like yeah. really scary to me actually. <laughs> but like a tool that could have yeah. that much impact on someone's yeah. life, um, you know, how can it go wrong? In general, we have guidance from courts in cases where criminal defendants have challenged the use of some of these kinds of tools 
for sort of traditional due process kinds of reasons, right? In general, we want our courts to be transparent about why they make decisions about you in a certain way, about you know a criminal sentence or a particular decision in a criminal case. And we now have uh, some cases, including one case in particular, this Loomis case out of Wisconsin, where criminal defendant challenged the risk score that was assessed, uh, given to him, saying this is not a fair, transparent process. I don't understand what this thing is. I don't understand what factors went into it. And um, the courts have basically said, yeah, but these tools are not are not the sole um, the sole deciding factor, right? We we are not yet maybe to temper your your um, your being scared just a little bit. We're not yet at the point where it's like robo judge. You walk into a court, you put your fingerprint on the scanner, it pulls up every piece of information about Gretchen Weber, and then assigns you a risk score. Instead, what happens is the risk score is given to a judge who ostensibly considers that risk score along with a whole confluence of other factors they're supposed to consider when again depending on what part of the criminal um, process we're in um, feeds that risk score into a bigger picture process, um, weighs all of the factors, and then comes up with a decision. Um, so that should give, maybe that gives some comfort. Maybe you, you know, I think that there, now I'll go back to scaring you a little bit more. Again, I do, I do think that there's a risk that some judges are using these kinds of risk scores in ways that they um, maybe were not intended to be used or in ways that um, or, or are incorporating a risk score into a, a six factor analysis they're supposed to be doing um, without fully understanding which of the six factors the risk score pertains to. Right. So, you know, uh, maybe to make a particular decision, a judge is supposed to weigh six things and she's given a risk score that answers questions one and three. And then now she's supposed to answer questions two, four, five and six. But she also weighs factor three again. And so suddenly factor three has become double counted in this sort of six factor test, all of which is to say one of the other one of the things we needed is clear guidance if a state is going to adopt a risk scoring tool to judges and others in the system to say, here is how they are supposed to be used. You should take this risk score of three and consider it when weighing these two factors and then make your own determination based on, based on other facts and testimony that come for you about the other factors, um, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a, a function of putting them in context and not just sort of considering the score in the abstract. When you say factors, are you, yep. do you mean situations? Like they would have it for pre-sentencing and then they would actually use it for... Well, so, so actually that's a good point. Two, two different things. One is um, is factors in, at a particular point in the, in the criminal justice process. So let's just say bail. Maybe bail is a four-factor test, a six-factor test, and the score is really only relevant to answering one or two of the questions you're supposed to ask when you do it. The, the point you just raised is a good one, is that we are hearing, at least, that some of these tools that are designed to produce a risk score that is relevant for one thing, like bail, could also be used by someone at the point of sentencing. Um, that's also troubling, right? Because it's not clear, um, again, this just points to the, the need for sort of clarity about what these risk scores really mean. It's not clear, even if we can get comfortable that a risk score of three is is good and valid and useful information in evaluating bail, there's no particular reason why that risk score of three should also then be used again later when we're determining the sentence at the end of the trial, right? It may be that a completely different kind of analysis is relevant um, at the sentencing phase, yet um, it's, it's not clear that... Um, when courts acquire these things, they're using them just in those sort of limited and prescribed ways. Um, there's also, I think, interesting questions about um, whether judges might put undue weight on scores that are develop, uh, uh, generated by 
software compared with other factors that might be viewed as more squishy and abstract and vague, right? There is, in some situations, sort of, um, if you tell someone that a computer program came up with something, uh, a tendency to really say, well, that must be true because it's mathematically been demonstrated, it's been run through the algorithm, and so therefore I'm going to put a lot of stock in that. Um, that might not be appropriate in some of these cases. Again, these these scores produce um, are are may be valid for very narrow sets of reasons for very particular kinds of determinations. They are not they should not be sort of viewed as generally applicable to to everything having to do with your character, your um, you know, your the kinds of uh, interactions you're going to have with the criminal justice system in the future, uh, that sort of thing. What are some of the just for general? Yeah. What are some of the squishier factors that a judge would consider that would be up against well, something like that? I mean, I guess. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess so. So at, at the point of bail, a lot of times what we're thinking about is. Um, again, those factors about how likely you are to come back. And not surprisingly, some of the factors that we want to consider there are things about your ties to the community, about your ties to family, about those sorts of things, right? We want to make sure that you're going to... Um, you're gonna you're gonna stick around. There may be some elements of that assessment that lend themselves really easy easily to sort of data driven determinations, like you know where do you live, how much money do you make, what you yeah, that kind of thing. There may be other things related to um, particular relationships that you have, that kind of thing, that might be better informed by actually asking questions of the defendant when he or she is standing before you, or maybe even assessing a witness's testimony or something like that. So. Um, yeah, so it could, it could be that these determinations are, um, you know, best reached by a combination of sort of firm, hard data and um, actually the kind of human assessments that judges are really built to do. That's what judges, that's what judges do all the time, assess character, assess credibility, um, that kind of thing. What, what are some factors that go into these tools? Yeah, I mean, again, they, the, some of the tools, for example, the Arnold Foundation's PSA tool is designed to um, pull in data without having to be fed anything based on data that the criminal justice system already has about you. So your past criminal record, outcomes of past criminal proceedings, any demographic information from you that it can glean from past records and that sort of thing. Again, I think that's do it's done that way in part to um, avoid excessive, I would say excessive, but avoid... Um, human interactions where bias could creep in, where mistakes could be made, where data entry problems could, could arise, where, no, we're just going to draw information out of the system itself. We have Gretchen Weber before us. Here's everything we know about Gretchen Weber, um, past criminal history, you know, where they live, all of that information. And we're just going to, we're just going to draw that in without anyone having to actually go ahead um, and input it. For other tools, I, my, my sense is that it's much more, um, they're asking particular questions. Um, and I think we may even have some of the sort of the scripts or the, the or at least what we understand to be general sets of information that they ask for, de demographic information, basically. And so sometimes they'd be pulling yep. in that demographic mm -hmm. information or that information about you, but then they're also comparing that mm -hmm. with information mm -hmm. people like you. Yeah, and because the, like again, the only way this works is that if we pull all the information is about, to pull in all the information about you, and then we see how people like you have behaved in the past under different sets of circumstances. The you know the only way 
these tools are at all valuable is if they have, again, sort of a training data set from the past. Their predictive power comes from their ability to kind of analyze things that have happened in the past and therefore predict the future. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, the question becomes, you know, what happens if particular factors turn out to have um, interesting or informative predictive value, but that predictive value is clearly the pro- byproduct of bias or racism or, or, or something like that, that we want to weed out to avoid, because the last thing we want to do is reinforce that and, keep, and, and continue that cycle. So um, that's sort of the, the um, you know, the, 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 the perfect answer here would be um, some combination of a tool and individual judgment of a judge where the tool is able to achieve all of the benefits of consistency and the other things we talked about while um, avoiding the, the kind of the perpetuation of these biases that already exist in the system. So who's in there doing that, like doing that work to make sure that there's no bias in these tools? Well, I don't know. It's a good question. So right now in Massachusetts, the, we, have, we have sort of a couple of bills that have been proposed to do sort of fairly significant criminal justice reform, much of which is really interesting and I think has been lauded sort of rightly around the country for a lot of um, interesting steps that Massachusetts is taking. Some of the bill, the Senate bill in particular, has some language in it that says, and Massachusetts shall adopt a criminal justice tool uh, scoring uh, uh, actuarial risk assessment tools. Uh, and shall, before doing so, make sure that the ones they use are, or either build or procure are not biased. Um, it doesn't give any indication of how to <laughs> how to do that. As I mentioned, sort of the I've talked to you know very very bright computer scientists who tell me that's really really hard to do. It's not just a function of asking, hey, is race one of the factors you consider? No, okay, great. Well, then this is this is great. It's much more um, complex than that. So um, there are computer scientists here at the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences over at the MIT Media Lab who are thinking about how we can um, yeah, make tools that achieve the positives, don't reinforce the negatives, um, and do so in a way that is sort of transparent or in computer science terms, sort of it gives results that are interpretable so that we can look at them and understand, oh, here is why Gretchen is a risk score of four or three or 70 or whatever it is. It's because we have we, it weighed these factors and compared them against this data set. And here's the reason it reached the conclusion it did. Um, and if you have that sort of uh, ex- that level of explainability or transparency, you could probably tweak things along the way and say, oh, you know what, it looks like this thing is actually biased in a particular way or the outcomes are not valid for some other reason, then we can make adjustments as we go. In the end, though, we'll have to connect those people with the private companies. Yeah, exactly. With Well, with the private companies or, I mean, a couple different things. One is connect them with the private companies to inform how the algorithms are built. Um, in some cases, it may be that a, com- a company could make the tool but allow the state significant discretion in sort of calibrating or setting up the tools. So maybe we could have people involved in that process to kind of say, you know what, in Massachusetts, we want a tool that weighs this more and this less and actually come up with the calibration. Or we could involve those people in saying, you know what, Massachusetts doesn't want to buy a tool off the shelf. We want to build our own thing. So let's talk to all the great researchers we have around here and see what they're thinking. Um, and uh, you know, again, maybe suggest that Massachusetts should do this on its own, or 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 um, or, or or if they are going to buy one off the shelf, buy one off the shelf only if it meets the following ten criteria. It's open, and uh, researchers have access to data. Um, that sort of thing. Tell me about the open letter and, and why yeah. you wrote it and what it says. So again, the Massachusetts uh, legislature, Senate, and House is in the process of considering criminal justice reform. Broadly speaking, in Massachusetts, we. Uh, 
our, our Senate uh, a week and a half ago or so passed a Senate bill with a number of amendments, and the Massachusetts House now is working on its own bill. And um, we, uh, as I mentioned, the Senate bill has some language in it that suggests that risk scoring tools should be adopted in the Commonwealth and that we should take steps to make sure that they're not biased. And uh, a number of us, most of whom, not all of whom, but most of whom are involved in the Berkman and MIT Media Lab AI ethics and governance efforts uh, signed on to this open letter to the Mass Legislature that basically said, um, look, you know, these kinds of tools may have a place in the system, but simply saying make sure they're not biased is not enough. And and if you're going to go forward, here are a whole bunch of principles that we want you to adhere to, primarily principles that relate to transparency, um, uh, rigorous testing, um, getting information from companies up front about what these tools do and how they were built, um, continuing to regularly evaluate them going forward, possibly setting up commissions that would involve um, outsiders, academics, scholars, uh, people from industry, others who would um, be involved in kind of regularly monitoring this. Again, trying to avoid the situation where we make a decision once uh, tomorrow or six months from now or a year from now to buy a particular tool and then just use it forever. Um, basically trying to make sure that this is basically trying to kind of set up a lot of process around both the procurement or development of the tool, the implementation of the tool, the training of the judges of how to use it and, and what, what these scores really mean and how they should fit into their legal analyses, and then ultimately sort of the rigorous evaluation of the outcomes. Are these tools actually having the predictive uh, uh, value that was promised? Um, how, how are we doing on the bias front? Does this seem to be generating results that um, are uh, biased in statistically in significant ways? Um, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, the letter was really mostly about process, raised some concerns about procuring the tools generally, but ultimately said, look, if we want to do this, set up some good process up front, educate judges about uh, how to use them, and then rigorously test them going forward to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It'll be interesting to see how these bills get reconciled and what the final language of the, of the criminal justice reform statute looks like, but... I don't think that we're going to get to a point where the legislature passes something and the next day the court system just goes out and buys a piece of technology. So what I would love is for them to take to heart either in the statute itself or at least in some in in sort of implementing whatever the statute says. Um, to develop process to involve the general public, to involve um, yeah, to involve all, a, a, a huge number of stakeholders, and really to kind of you know put in place to, to recognize that um, I think one of the things we say in the letter is that Massachusetts did not dive into this risk scoring thing early the way other states did, and that um, we should take advantage of the fact that we've prolibor- proceeded with deliberation to date and should continue to proceed with deliberation again by you know doing any number of things, setting up commissions, seeking counsel counsel from um, people who work in the criminal justice system seeking counsel from uh, technical folks who understand the way these algorithms work, um, wielding their procurement power uh, in responsible ways with the companies that are selling these tools to say, look, we're not going to buy your tool unless you can come to the table and tell us X, Y, Z about it. We're not going to simply buy into a black box. Uh, and then again, maybe ultimately concluding, you know what, the way to go here is for us to just build our own. And, to, and if that's if that's the way we want to go, I think that's um, there are a lot of a lot of arguments in favor of that. If we're going to go down this path and if we're going to actually start implementing this, we probably ought to, um, yeah, we, we, we will have to educate the public about what's going on. I think we would view that as part of our mission here at Berkman is to make sure that um, 
this is the subject of sort of vigorous uh, debate, informed debate, to be clear, because again, I think that sometimes the debate about this around this sort of devolves into um, either technology is going to solve all our problems or it's, you know, a dystopian future with robotic judges that are going to sentence us to death. And I don't think it's either of those things. So um, I think having this debate and conversation in a way that is um, nuanced and responsible will be really difficult, but I think it's something we absolutely have to do. Um, Partly because I should say, you know, this initiative at Berkman and MIT is the artificial intelligence ethics and governance. There's nothing about anything we've talked about here that really has to do with artificial intelligence, where um, the computer program is learning and evolving and changing and adapting over time. Um, But that's coming, right? And the more we get sort of used to these kinds of systems working in the criminal justice system, spitting out risk scores that judges kind of take into account, the more comfortable we're going to be as the computing power increases and the autonomy increases of these programs. So, and again, I don't want to be too dystopic about it and say like the bad stuff's coming, but it's only a matter of time. I mean, it's happening in our cars, it's happening in our news feeds, on the social media sites we use that more and more decisions are being made by algorithms. And, you know, uh, anytime we get a technical technological intervention in, in a system like this, uh, particularly where criminal justice is at stake, where people's uh, freedom is at stake, um, I think we want to tread really carefully, um, recognizing that um, the next iteration of this technology is even going to be more expansive, um, raise even more challenging questions than the questions that these sort of actuarial tools uh, can raise. Chris Babbitts is the director of the Cyberlaw Clinic at Harvard Law School. He helped draft an open letter to the state legislature of Massachusetts about risk assessment tools, co-signed by several researchers working on the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence. You can find a link to that letter as well as a transcript of this interview at cyber.harvard.edu. If you like this interview, please share it and rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. For The Platform, I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones. See you next time.